Well, hey, everybody, it's great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. I'm honored to have you along for the ride. And just to get ahead of your questions, uh, no, I have absolutely no idea how my mom and the rest of the Encore group figured out the perfect number of pup balls needed to make our gathering space look like a snow globe once again this year, but they did, and it looks awesome. Can you give them a round of applause? Indeed. Um, and just in case you're wondering, there are 3,333 puffballs out there. Mm, feel free to count on your way out. Anyway, I'm super excited this week because we get to launch a brand new, seasonally appropriate, exceptionally festive series called Why Christmas? And to get us going, I want to talk for you, talk to you for just a minute about all those signs and bumper stickers and coffee mugs and t-shirts and decorative Christmas pillows that show up each time this year. You know the ones I'm talking about, the ones that say Jesus is the reason for the season. And, and I mean, it's a great saying. It's a true statement because without Jesus, there would be no Christmas season. But I actually think, I was thinking about this this week, if we were going to take the authors of the New Testament seriously, and around here we do, uh, it might actually be more accurate to say that you are the reason for the season. And, and so am I. Um, and the reason I say that is because if you think about it, um, if we weren't in need of being rescued from our sins, then there wouldn't need to be a Christmas. And so I actually had this idea, this, this joke bombed for a service, so at least laugh a little bit and make me feel better about myself, okay? I think we need to make some Christmas merchandise that looks more like this, okay? I did this on a website. You can make your own pillow. I didn't order the pillow for obvious reasons, but and, I mean, nobody would buy this, but if you threw this on your couch, can you imagine the conversations that would ensue? They're like, I don't even know. And if it, if it made it on social media, I would have to spend hours defending myself and nobody needs to do that. But you, you have to admit that from God's perspective, the first Christmas really was for our benefit. And if you think about it, Christmas actually benefited us in a number of different ways. And in fact, that's why I want to take the time between now and Christmas Eve to look at four specific ways that I would argue Christmas benefited us. Four answers to that question, why Christmas? Um, and so to get us moving towards our first answer, which is what we get to chase down today, what I want to do is introduce you, or if you've been around church, reintroduce you to a couple who I would argue is often overlooked this time of the year, because as it turns out, the Christmas story, or maybe better, the story of Christmas, didn't begin when an angel visited a virgin named Mary. It actually began around six months earlier when an angel visited a couple who had been waiting for something. And they'd been waiting for this something for a very long time. Time. It was something they desperately wanted. And that leads me to believe that this couple had to be wondering if God had forgotten about them. And before I show you the details of their story, I just got to ask you, have you ever felt like that? Maybe you're here and you feel that way right now and you can't believe we're talking about this. But, but have you ever experienced an extended season in which you were crying out to God to intervene in your life, in your story. Maybe it was with a relationship, maybe it was with a job, maybe it was a, a career path. And you kept crying out and, and you just waited for God 
to respond, and he just didn't seem to be interested in, in doing that. Have you ever experienced a frustrating season during which your prayers seem to bounce off the ceiling? And you found yourself asking questions like, um, you know, wh why do I keep on serving and giving and believing and obeying if God doesn't really seem to care about me? It really, I mean, the evidence would say that he's given up on me. Why shouldn't I just give up on him? And if you've ever, if you've ever had thoughts like that, and again, maybe you're here this morning and you were like, I'm giving God one more shot. And you're like, I can't believe the guy is talking about this thing and the music's good so we'll see where it goes from here but yeah like if you've ever felt that way or if you feel that way right now I'm telling you today's answer to the question of why Christmas is for you in fact the couple at the center of our story today I think they shared some of your questions and so uh, to introduce you to them we need to go to a man named Luke's account of the life of Jesus and in Luke's account he introduced them to us this way he wrote in the time of King Herod or Herod, rather, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, in case you were wondering. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. And I realize that uh, Luke's description here is a bit technical, but he wanted his readers to understand that Zechariah and Elizabeth came from a long line of Jewish religious professionals, priests. Moreover, as Luke continued, he presented his readers with what I would argue is an absolutely critical piece of information. He wrote that both of them, so Zechariah and Elizabeth, were righteous in the sight of God. And if you're wondering what that meant, he said they observed all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. In other words, Luke wants us to know that in God's eyes, Zechariah and Elizabeth were doing all of the right things. They were honoring all of God's intentions for their lives. And uh, if you've studied the ancient Jewish culture at all, you know that doing all the right things as a Jewish person at that point in history took a massive amount of effort, focus, and dedication. I mean, in the Old Testament, God had revealed to the children of Israel 613 different commands to follow, like whole lists of things to do and not to do. And I've spent a lot of time uh, studying the Old Testament, and I don't even like reading all of these rules. I can't even imagine trying to obey all of them. Nonetheless, according to Luke, Zechariah and Elizabeth were blameless before God. They not only knew all the commands, they were committed to living them. And so consequently, from heaven's perspective, they were truly exceptional people. And that, at least for me, raises a few questions. Specifically, what was it like to be them? I mean, I've often thought if I could perfectly align myself with God's will for my life and never stray off that path, if that were possible for me, and it's, I don't think it is, but anyway, if it were possible, what would I experience from God? What sort of blessings? Like, how would he specifically take care of someone who was so incredibly faithful? And we don't have to wonder because Luke actually tells us. According to Luke, in spite of their radical, steadfast commitment to obedience, and check this out, Zechariah and Elizabeth were childless. Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. And so just so we're clear, what this meant was that Zechariah and Elizabeth had spent decades of their lives living in faithfulness while they were waiting on God to send them a blessing that never came. I mean, they would, they would have experienced this in their teens. They would have experienced this in their 20s and their 30s, and their 40s, and their 50s, and into their 
retirement years. And, and I'm telling you, like, infertility was a bigger deal in the ancient world than it even is today. And it is a massive deal in our world today. And I say it was a bigger deal in the ancient world because, well, in the ancient world, infertility was always seen as the woman's fault. And so consequently, the ability to have children was central to a woman's sense of worth. Moreover, in the first century Jewish world, infertility carried a religious stigma because people believed that it was God who decided who was able to have children and who was not. In other words, a woman who was incapable of conception was viewed as being cursed. And so for Elizabeth, what that meant was that as she walked faithfully with God, she also struggled and prayed for a blessing, a divine intervention in her life that never came. And as, as she aged and walked the streets of her hometown, people kind of looked at her and thought, I wonder what secrets she holds. I mean, she appears by all accounts to be righteous, but there must be something beneath the surface. And she carried that sense with her for most of her adult life. And so as a result, when we're introduced to Zechariah and Elizabeth, Luke wants us to know that the hope of them ever having children on their own had died. They were well past the age when conception should have been possible. And so they had resolved themselves to the reality that God had not come through for them and that they would carry the shame and the pain of childlessness for the rest of their lives. So that's a bit of what it was like to be Zachariah and Elizabeth. But I, as I was reflecting this week on this content, I thought, you know, historically speaking, the disappointment and frustration that they were experiencing sort of mirrored the disappointment and frustration of the entire nation of Israel at that time. Because 2,000 years before the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth, God had made a promise to a man who was the father of the entire nation of Israel, a man named Abraham. And God had told Abraham that one day he was going to bless the world through one of Abraham's descendants. And he had said it to Abraham this way. It's recorded in the first book in the Bible. That's called Genesis. But God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And he says, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then he says this, and all peoples on earth, will be blessed through you, the nation that comes from you. And, and as incredible as that was, in the early days of the first century, we have to understand the people of Israel were still waiting on God to deliver on that promise. Uh, their children would grow up in synagogue, and as they were growing and learning, they would repeatedly be taught that that according to the text, there's more in store for Israel. God is going to use our nation to bless the world. But see, not unlike Zechariah and Elizabeth at the dawn of the first century, Israel's hope for a better future had faded after a seemingly never-ending period of waiting. And to make matters even more emotionally complicated for them during those hundreds of years of waiting, like the land of Israel had repeatedly been overthrown by foreign powers, so consequently, by the time the first century rolls around, Israel had no army and really no influence in the world. They were occupied by Rome, like much of the world at the time. And so consequently, the idea that God would one day use them to bless the world, well, at best it seemed improbable, and honestly, it felt impossible. So much so that scholars tell us that by the first century, many, many Jewish people had all but abandoned 
the worship of God and that he had begun to integrate themselves into the Greco-Roman culture because that's where they saw hope. That's where they saw a chance for influence. That's where they saw a future. Many, many, many Jewish people sort of distancing themselves from the faith tradition that has grounded their nation. Many, many Jewish people, but not Zechariah and Elizabeth. See, they had remained faithful and committed to the God who really seemed to have forgotten about them. And as I was imagining what it would be like to be them, I wonder if they ever had a moment where a friend came over, maybe for dinner, and, and said something to them like, you know, come on, give it up. It's a myth. It's not going to happen. It can't happen. God can't possibly give you what you want. Hey, you might as well live out the rest of your lives without the burden of following all those religious rules. I mean, God, if there even ever was a God, has clearly abandoned you. If he cared about you, why would he remain silent? He abandoned you. You may as well abandon him. See, but here's the thing. If that hypothetical conversation had happened, if someone had said that to Zechariah and Elizabeth, they would be wrong. Because as the story of Christmas begins... God made contact with Zechariah and Elizabeth and delivered them a message in the most tangible way possible that his silence was not a confirmation of his absence. That in fact, he was at work even in the midst of their darkest days, even all those nights when their eyes filled with tears. And that is a message I think we all need to receive. I mean, think about this. During the course of our lives, we all have moments when based on our situational frustrations and disappointments, in, in the midst of confusion, we sort of wonder if God is paying attention. Like, if he loves us and if he's for us, then why are we experiencing this? It's a common set of questions when life doesn't go as planned. But as it turns out, the story of Christmas answers the question of where is God when life is hard with resounding clarity. Here's how Luke described what happened to Zechariah and Elizabeth. He wrote that once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Okay, so there's like a lot going on in that sentence. So let me explain. In the first century, there were 23 different divisions of priests who served in the Jewish temple. Here's an artist's rendering I found online. The Jewish temple was the center of Israel's religious life. It was by far the most prominent structure in the city of Jerusalem. And so these priests would serve on a rotating basis to do the work of the temple. And as was their tradition, they would roll dice in order to determine which priest from the division on duty would get to enter the temple building and burn incense and worship to God on behalf of the nation of Israel. And it was like the highest of honors. Anyway, Luke recorded that when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So the idea is Zechariah goes in, everyone else is outside, they're waiting for Zechariah to do what he's going to do. And then as Zechariah is in there, he says, then an angel of the Lord appeared to Zechariah standing on the right side of the altar of incense. In other words, Zechariah was alone in the temple when God made contact and Luke continued, when Zechariah saw him, the angel, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, 
do not be afraid, Zechariah. And I love that because the angel said to Zechariah, well, the same thing that every angel whose actions are recorded in the New Testament said upon making contact with people because apparently angels are incredibly intimidating creatures. I mean, when, even when they're not trying to be scary, they are scary. Uh, anyway, as it turned out, this particular angel had some good news for a really good man. He said, do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. And by prayer, it was like your decades of prayer for the same reason. All of the tears, your prayer has been heard. And I can't even begin to imagine the wave of emotion that would have washed over Zechariah. I mean, imagine how he must have felt when he learned that in spite of all of the evidence to the contrary, God had been paying attention to their situation. I mean, it, it was hard, but God was not absent. He had seen, he had heard, and apparently he cared. And as the angel continued to speak, things got even more exciting for Zechariah because after affirming that God had indeed heard his prayers and the prayers of his beloved wife, the angel said, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will, bring, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He goes on. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. Hold on to that. We'll get there in a second. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Then look at this. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. In other words, the angel says, Zechariah, you have to understand. The waiting was long and the waiting was hard, but God had a plan for your life and that plan included you bringing a very special boy into this world. You're gonna have a son and he is gonna be set apart from birth according to the traditions outlined in the Old Testament because God has a special job for him to do, a special role for him to play in the story of redemption. In fact, your son, Zachariah, your son that you've waited your whole life for, that you thought was impossible, your son will bring many of the people of Israel back to God. And you're like, well, why do they need to be brought back to God? Remember, there had been generations of silence and people were finally starting to distance themselves from God saying this whole thing, it's just not worth it anymore. If God doesn't care about us, why do we care about them? And he said, this is going to be the spark of revival in the nation of Israel. And again, I just think Zechariah is spinning at this point. You know, the incense is slowly rising. And a uh, as Zechariah sort of absorbs the angel's revelation, I think he sort of timidly asked a, a question. It's a practical question. I mean, in, in the presence of an angelic being, it probably seemed like a silly question, but, but he said this. He says, how, respectfully, Mr. Angel Guy, how can I be sure of this? I, maybe in angel class, they didn't tell you about how human, humans make more human, this whole thing. But here, look, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And I love that Zachariah is diplomatic here. Do you not? Yeah? <laughs> He's like, you know, uh, <clears throat> sorry, Mr. Angel. Um, I'm, I'm kind of too old to have kids. And my wife, she's, uh, she's well along in, in, in years. And I was like, Zachariah, bro, so wise. 
right? I mean, spoken like a dude who's been married for decades, right? Anyway, uh, yeah, you get the newly married couples and you're like, yeah, my wife's like seven months older than me. Can you believe it? She robbed the cradle. Yeah, like that. You know, that's no good. So well long in years. Anyway, his point was that though he was thrilled that God had heard his prayers, he was also afraid that it was too late because it's no longer biologically possible for he and his wife to conceive. And the angel responds, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And I love it. The angel doesn't even like, well, let me explain to you how this is going to work. He's like, it'll work. He says, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true. And this is easy to blow by, but at their appointed time, at their appointed time. And, and so like, if you think about it, the being rendered you know, mute is really an unexpected turn of events for Zechariah. But I'm telling you, I don't think that would have been the most disorienting part of this experience for him. I, I think the thing that would have stunned him is the thought that, that, that this day, this experience, this pregnancy had been on God's calendar for hundreds of years. There was an appointed time that this was going to happen. And there was a long period of time before this was going to happen. And Zechariah didn't know that, and God did. I mean, I think Zechariah would have been completely overwhelmed with the thought that even though God had been silent, even though God had not intervened in their story to give them what they wanted, he hadn't been absent. There was a plan, and God was at work preparing things behind the scenes, even in the midst of the silence. And had Zechariah been able to verbalize that to the angel, and he couldn't, I'm pretty sure that the angel would look back at Zechariah and just sort of nodded at Zechariah saying, you're telling me that this was all part of God's plan. You're telling me that all those decades, all the tears, all the sleepless nights, all the conversations, all the glances from our neighbors and our friends and even our family wondering what we had done to left us cursed. You're telling me all of that. This was, this was the plan all along. And the angel would have just nodded. Okay, check out what happened next. Luke recorded that. Meanwhile, I love this. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. Because, as it turns out, it doesn't take that long to light a stick of incense, right? And so they're all like, what in the world is he doing in there? But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. In other words, in this moment, if you always wondered where did charades start, I would argue right <laughs> here. Yeah, right? Zachariah is just like, you know, angel, they're like banana, no, baby, no, what are you talking about, right? And, and then uh, Luke goes on to say, when his time of service was completed, like when the, the Abijah team is going home, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. And then look what she says. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away and here it is again, my disgrace from among the people. She lived with a sense of disgrace and that her neighbors and friends were looking at her sideways. So she just erupts in praise to God and his, and his faithfulness. His faithfulness in spite of all of the waiting. He's still faithful. He still has a plan. And I just wonder, did Elizabeth just feel vindicated? She's like, I knew he had a plan all along. 
I didn't know what it was. I couldn't even imagine what it was, but I was not going to become unfaithful because I know he is faithful. And as I was reflecting on this this week, I, I think I love Zachariah and Elizabeth's story because it really was only, it was the opening act in the story of Christmas, but it, it's, it provides a powerful affirmation that God is going to do what God has planned to do all along. God was, is planning to do what faithful people like Zechariah and Elizabeth have been waiting, had been waiting for him to do for generations. That's why I think that the, you know, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth provides us with the first answer to the question of why Christmas. I like to say it like this, Christmas, so why Christmas? Christmas is God's way of confirming his presence in our lives and affirming that for all the time, um, and we experience seasons of silence and frustration where God is just seems distant and disinterested. Times like that in our lives, times like that with people we love, times in the world. God wants us to know his silence is not confirmation of his absence. He is still watching. He is still listening. He still cares. And he still keeps his promises. And so in spite of what we feel on any given day, we can trust him until the time comes for his plan to move forward. And then, in that sense, I guess Zachariah and Elizabeth's story is really a bit like all of our stories in seasons when God is silent, seasons when it feels like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And I would argue that like them in those seasons, we each have a choice to make. Like, do we believe or do we stop believing? Do we trust or do we stop trusting? Do we keep serving and loving in Jesus' name or do we go and do something else with our time? How about this one? Do we maintain our integrity or do we compromise in order to get ahead? Do we keep doing the right thing or do we allow God's seeming lack of interest in our situation to become justification for doing something that deep down we know is wrong? I'm telling you, even though it's natural, normal even, to turn away from God in seasons of disappointment and frustration, it so encourages me to, to note that in every generation, you can find a remnant of people who choose to remain faithful. People who, despite God's silence, still choose to believe that he is active in their lives. People who, in spite of significant emotional obstacles, keep moving forward one step at a time and keep trusting in God. I guess the good news, if, if that's where you find yourself this morning, if, if you're like, I'm here, again, I'm giving God one more chance, can't believe we're talking about this today. If that's you, I want you to know there's nothing wrong with you. I mean, this, if this is your situation this morning, you need to know that your experience has been common among people of faith, good, faithful people of faith, for as long as there have been people of faith. And that's why I'm convinced that one of the answers to the question why Christmas is to let the world know that faith in God, when life is hard, is not misplaced. That, in fact, the story he's telling in our world and the story he's telling with your life is always unfolding right on schedule. Even when we feel like he has no plan and he's abandoned us, his story is happening right on schedule. Schedule. And so the story of Christmas is a powerful reminder that your faith and your hope are not in vain. And that that longing deep in your soul that you feel from time to time is ultimately a longing for redemption, for God to make things right. And God is still bringing redemption 
even in moments when it doesn't feel like it, he, he, he really is because that is what who, that is who he is. And that, my friends, is the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the first answer to the question of why Christmas. And we'll pick it up there next week. Yeah, but for now, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time together in prayer. And uh, if, if you came into this place and you just need to talk to someone or pray with someone, we have some friends that will be under the screen to the left. Um, after I dismiss, they'd love to spend some time with you. But for the rest of us, let me close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're telling a good story. And we acknowledge there are seasons of our lives when um, we're confused, we're disoriented, and it just feels like you don't care. And for friends that feel that way, even right now, I pray that you would whisper to them that you are with them as they walk through confusion and disappointment and frustration and questions. You are with them. And you are still telling a story with their lives. And that story is right on schedule. Thank you for preserving the account of Zachariah and Elizabeth. And I pray that their example would inspire us when life gets hard to lean towards you and not walk away from you. Thank you for this season each year when we celebrate the coming of your son, our king. Thank you for changes in rhythms that allow us to reflect on your goodness and your faithfulness. Most of all this morning, we thank you for Jesus, the light of the world, the Prince of Peace, who came among us as one of us to make a way for us to find a restored relationship with you. It is in his name, the name above all names that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week. <laughs>